If you're always on the go like myself and don't have time to sit down and read, Audible.com is a great source to be able to catch up on the latest bestsellers. Listen to it while on the road or at the gym. Audible.com is a leading provider of premium digital audio information and entertainment on the internet. Audible content includes more than 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word audio products. Audible carries Audible books in every genre imaginable business, classics, history, self development, just to name a few. Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook of your choice and a free 30 day trial membership. Just go to audible.com slash replay and choose from over 180,000 audio programs. Download a title for free and start listening. It's that easy. Currently, I am listening to the classic One Fish, Two Fish, Red Fish, Blue Fish. One Fish, Two Fish, Red Fish, Blue Fish, Black Fish, Blue Fish, Old Fish, New Fish. Okay, that's、This、genius. Go to audible.com slash replay. That's audible.com slash replay and get started today. There's no one better than、uh, Liz Gaines who covers this area really well about innovation, the sharing economy.、Uh, she calls it the instant gratification economy. And so we really wanted to get what it's like to be them、um, and to get a sense of what it is. And so we, we, we picked three ones that were in very different areas. So, Liz, why don't you introduce them? Okay, yeah, so we have、oh, Stripe and Slack on today. We'll bring them out.、Uh, Stuart Butterfield, Patrick Carlson, and Uh, a D from、uh, from from House. Come on out, guys. And lady. I'm expecting them to come. Yeah, there we go.、Um, I'll take the middle one.、Oh. Definite advantages to it, right? So,、uh, I mean, There's no one better than、uh, Liz Gaines, who covers this area really well about innovation, the sharing economy.、Uh, she calls it the instant gratification economy. And so we really wanted to get what it's like to be them、um, and to get a sense of what it is. And so we, we, we picked three ones that were in very different areas. So, Liz, why don't you introduce them? Okay, yeah. So we have、oh, Stripe and Slack on today. We'll bring them out.、Uh, Stuart Butterfield, Patrick Carlson, and、uh, a D from,、uh, from, from House. Come on out, guys. And lady? I'm expecting them to come. Yeah, there we go.、Um, I'll take the middle one.、Oh. So, yeah, so Kara mentioned that you guys are the up and comers. Someday, maybe you'll be like Evan Spiegel. Twenty <laughs>、uh, four, yeah. But no, I mean, really. Disappearing this... messages coming to Slack. Yep. Yeah. I didn't hear you. I was just asking Stuart if the rumors about disappearing messages coming to Slack are true. Yeah, yeah disappearing messages.、Um, but I, I want to get a bit into、um, your backstories because you are really different.、Um, and、uh, I, I guess one way I, I think is interesting to ask that question is to talk about. Uh, what was it like before what you're doing now started to feel inevitable? So, what was the kind of the, the dark before the dawn when you turned towards your direction、um, where your company is going now? Because all three of you are on kind of these crazy trajectories、um, in really different areas.、Um, and we'll move around, but let's start with Stuart for now. Okay. I, I had an unusual story, I think, for this company just because we started it six years ago. To do something totally different, a web based massively multiplayer game that didn't work at all. This was、uh, Glitch. This was Glitch, yeah. It、so、really didn't work. It didn't work, no, not even slightly. Spectacular failure.、Okay. Uh, so, the company started in 2009. It was the end of 2012 when we decided we were going to shut it down. So, the dark period is like standing up in front of the company and tell people who you just convinced to move with their families to take this job that they don't have a job anymore. And that's, I mean, it's, it's horrible for them, but it's. Uh, it's horrible to be on that side.、And、so, can I ask how much money did you spend? You had raised $25 million, right?、Uh, for Glitch, we raised $17.5 million. We had $5 million left when we decided to shut the game down. Okay. And no one wants their money back. Everyone、okay. learned a Twitter lesson, I think. But when did, when did Slack, when did you realize that was your thing? That was where we were going, and suddenly, like a year later, you would、um, have raised like, $100 million? We started development in like some. January 2013.、Um, in August of 2013, we did a preview release, so kind of like beta.、Um, and by the end of the year, by, by the end of 2013, early 2014, it was pretty obvious that it was going to be some kind of success.、Um, like, so the humiliation could be set aside for, for a while.、Um, it wasn't clear the magnitude, though, at that time. Yeah. 
Patrick? Um, for us, it was, it was just kind of really surprising, I guess, that something like Stripe didn't exist. And I remember sort of trying to find it, right? Uh, because we'd sort of uh, built these websites and these apps and, and things like this, right? And it just seemed so sort of so incongruous that sort of as, for, for example, the hosting industry was sort of being restructured with these kind of technology platforms. So we were moving away from kind of the, the legacy hosting providers where you have to like rent physical servers to sort of hosting on demand where you can sort of scale elastically to, to any size. It seemed shocking um, that nothing analogous to that existed for sort of uh, a commerce platform or a business platform. And so I, I remember, I mean, literally Googling, sort of trying to find the company that was doing this for payments because it must exist, right? Uh, and then sort of it gradually becoming clear to us that it didn't. Um, and certainly in the beginning, uh, because I guess sort of the, the industry had been sort of so staid and so unperturbed for so long, we'd talk to these finance industry executives or whatever, right, and tell them that we sort of wanted to bring a technology kind of API approach to this movement of money. And they would tell us that, uh, that it, it wouldn't work, uh, it, it couldn't work, you know, th things had to be as they were. And so I think sort of the, I don't know, the, the nadir or something of the Stripe experience is sort of you have this like kind of radically different conception of how things ought to be. You, th you think that there should be sort of a, an ensemble of APIs that sort of address this, you know, disparate, these swathes of functionality, and basically everybody who actually knows something about the domain so, is So they told you it, it didn't exist, you found it, it didn't exist, and they right. told you it shouldn't exist. Uh, uh, the, well, I, I, they didn't think that it would be valuable, that sort of turning all this stuff into APIs would be valuable, and they thought, uh, I, I guess, that you, uh, a, a lot of things we wanted to do around sort of, you know, unifying international payment mechanisms and things like this, that that couldn't work, that you wouldn't be able to sort of bring all these different entities together. Uh, and, and I guess uh, they, they had tried to do things like this in the 80s, and it hadn't worked, and so I think, you know, people always, Paul Bukat has a great quote about, uh, uh, you know, how advice is sort of over-extrapolation from limited personal experience. Um, and uh, I think there's probably something like that at play. For us, it was, um, it was not a company. It was not an idea for a company. It was our side project. We just bought a house, our first house ever. And we just had big dreams, Alan and I, how wonderful it's going to be to design our first new home. And, um, and the process was terrible really, really bad um, from finding good professionals that uh, could execute the dream that we had uh, to finding great products and materials, even being able to verbally say what we have in our heads while we are not designers or contractors. The whole process was so broken and frustrating and we spent a lot of energy and time and money that we didn't have um, just to get a year later plans that we didn't want to execute. It was bad. And how it started as a side project for our community in the Bay Area. We were both working, raising our kids, but we felt, after talking to many parents at our kids' school and um, many professionals from the industry, architects, designers, contractors, that there is a lot of frustration around something that should be so meaningful in people's lives, and people are spending so much money on it. This is a huge industry. Um, and it started like this and took life of its own and started growing uh, organically until we decided to raise the money. So when you, when you get to that moment, when you're, when you're I want to get to your worst venture capital stories in a minute, but, um, but, but what, when you get to that moment, for example, Stuart had had Flickr, which started as something else, is that correct? Yeah. Um, and then you had, had Slack, which is an enormous, considered enormous, that started as something else. What is the thing when you, each of you, you know, when you're, there's a lot of doubts, trust me, I understand your pain. Um, where is, where do, you, where do you push through on the doubts? Because I think I, when your thing didn't work, I think I might have given up. Or what was, what was your, what was, how did you push through that? Um, I mean, pride and desperation, I guess. I mean, those are like two, two big motivators. Um, but also the, you know, as the person in charge, that if you're not feeling like things are going to work out, then people read that pretty quick. Like, uh, who can smell fear? Horses or dogs or whatever. Yeah. Um, humans can smell fear as Fear well. bears before they eat you, but go ahead. Yeah. Go ahead. Um, so, I mean, I think the, the fact that you have to have some conviction on behalf of everyone else, and if you don't, then you're going to fail them. Because, I mean, that this is very Henry Fordy, but if you don't think that it's going to work, it's definitely not going to work. I mean, if you, as the, as the CEO, um, you have to believe that there is a, a shot. 
and or be very, very convincing in pretending that you believe they're, they're not I, I think that it also kind of goes beyond rationality to some degree in the sense that uh, I don't know if sort of you ever thought that like glitch was sort of the optimal thing to build from like an expected value perspective, but I bet you just like really wanted to see it exist in the world, right? And sort of similarly for us, uh, I'm not sure that we ever believed kind of at any point in the early days that this was kind of the, uh, the sort of the the best kind of weighted bet to make or something, right? Like maybe maybe the, the, the finance folks and the bankers were right and it couldn't exist, but we personally really wanted it. And so we were kind of okay with the idea that we would try to build it and, and it, it might fail because again, it, it just, it felt so strongly to us like something that should exist. But I think there, there kind of has to be that sort of additional kind of emotional impetus to get you over the hurdle because at many junctures along the way in the early days, it is going to look like something that'll fail. Adi, what is that? Is it just pure stubbornness or just delusional? I, I feel like delusion works really well I think that for us, we didn't have that pressure because it wasn't a company. We didn't have to convince investors that they should give us money or we will be able to execute it. Without understanding, this side project was actually our bootstrapping. And we had a lot of fun doing it, and we still do. And by the time that we had to say, okay, if we want to scale this, we do need to create a real company. And it took a long time to get to the moment when we say we should do it. Right. It's so when great. believe in it. We believed in it all the time, but it was our great uh, satisfaction from what we are creating, the feedback from the professional community. They said, this is wonderful. We're going to introduce it to all our clients, and they did, and to their peers, and they did. And when it started from 20 parents from the kids' school, and all of a sudden we've heard and, uh, and got emails from people outside of California and outside of uh, United States, and we said, okay, this is growing, and uh, it has a demand. Uh, but we didn't have that pressure of... You know, is it going to work? Is it not going to work? It was our our baby. So when and, did you start feeling the pressure? Um, I think that at the moment we were stretched so thin, both of us, trying to work um, not at house. You know, there was no house. Um, do our day jobs, raise our kids, and and work on this project. And at some point we figure out, you know, this is so big and. We started getting lots of requests and emails from professionals uh, all over the state, open more categories, open more metros, we want to do this. And the community from day one was very supportive and they wanted more and more, more functionality, more technology, more collaboration. And we felt, okay, we need more people to help us build this. And of course, a few people convinced us that we should take money from investors, which we didn't want to do at all. And we found uh, really amazing investors. But for us, it was never, a proof point, you know. We need to prove somebody that this idea is good. We need to prove somebody that we can do it. We need to prove somebody that this can work because it all happened already. And I think this is a good lesson in retrospect because you don't have to chase investors the first six months or one year. Yes, if you had Flickr before, investors will give you money anyway. But most of the entrepreneurs, first-time entrepreneurs, go to investors and they need to prove two things. One, that the idea is good, it's valid, it's going to work, somebody is going to need it. Uh, which not always they believe in, and two, that you as an entrepreneur will be able to scale this, execute. And they have doubts if you're a first-time entrepreneur. We didn't have to prove that. So I say, why don't you spend the first six months to 12 months of your startup life and try to create a real product and see if users really like it, if they're really going to use it, if you can execute it, if you're really passionate about what you're going to do and want to do it for the long term, and then go to the investors. Believe me, they'll come to you. But let's get a little bit more personal. I mean, talk about yourselves as leaders. And I was just looking over and observing that, like, I do you work closely with your husband. He's your co-founder. Patrick, you work closely with your brother. I think, Stuart, you're with a lot of people that you've worked for for a number of years, right? And so how, um, who are you as a leader within that company, especially with people who know you quite so well? I think it's... Um, I, I'm personally highly in favor of uh, starting businesses with people you know well, like there's all kind of the received wisdom around, you know, don't hire your friends, don't work with your friends, maybe don't work with a spouse or family member or whatever. Um, from my standpoint, it's actually really efficient because uh, we sort of, uh, you know, we had decades of experience to figure out, um, you know, how to resolve disagreements between us and, you know, we, we moved on from sort of throwing Lego at each other to sort of, you know, a uh, higher level means of uh, conflict resolution. Um, but, uh, but actually sort of having that relationship uh, where you don't feel sort of any hesitation or compunction in, in you know, saying, I think this is the stupidest thing I've ever heard, like that, that kind of directness and, and sort of, uh, uh, you know, facility and bluntness is, is, is extremely helpful. But you are the one in charge. I'm sorry? You are the one in charge. Um, I mean, honestly, we know each other so well that uh, it, 
I guess that would only really matter in a case where sort of there was a significant disagreement between us and sort of one of us had to be the tiebreaker and say, no, we're doing it this way. And yeah, at some point maybe that'll happen in the company, but there's never been a, an instance where sort of we, we haven't ended up on roughly the same page. So maybe a way to ask that is like, what, what is like weird or interesting or different about the way that you lead? Well, I think that would be a more interesting question to ask uh, everyone else than me, and that I, I probably think that I, you know, I lead in all of the you know, most sensible, reasonable ways. Um, uh, I, I mean, I, I think about the, the company leadership as a whole, probably the, uh, uh, the, the, the two most interesting parts are, uh, well, I mean, the most different part is, yes, that sort of I, I started this company with my brother. But having said that, I, I think that there's always, uh, I don't know how, how Stuart, uh, and, and well, I guess everyone feels, but. Uh, that uh, th there's always an undue focus placed on the founders in that sort of, from the outside world's perspective, you kind of have to have this simplifying abstraction of sort of, you know, Patrick or whoever is the leader of Stripe and sort of that, that is kind of so determinative of the kind of entire culture and, and leadership style of the company. Whereas, you know, obviously there, there are sort of dozens of managers and leaders of different forms at Stripe. And they have sort of huge but, in, but influence. That's like in, a Silicon Valley thing. I mean, that's sort of the celebrity founder. Yeah, and I, and I think it's really mistaken um, in that, again, I, I kind of see how it happens because, you know, people kind of want to have a face and a name they can associate with a particular company. Um, but I think that it's kind of misleading and that basically I think that I'm uh, uh, less of Stripe than sort of uh, people would think from the outside in that, okay, fine, I'm like serving in the role of CEO, but I mean, that is just one role of, I mean, literally hundreds of a company. What is your, what is your role, Stuart, in how, how do you consider your leadership style? What is it? Or what do you think is important as an entrepreneurial company? Um, the thing I think is important is making people feel like they are given the opportunity to do the best work of their life. So the, there's like the positive one that um, I just had a fireside chat at an all hands at our company interviewing Ben Horowitz. And so Ben talked a lot about the perversion of your intentions um, because you want to be liked. So like mm -hmm. avoid having difficult conversations and stuff like that. And I, I mean, so my question for him was, I, I really like to be liked, like maybe, right. maybe pathologically like it's, <laughs> uh, an illness. Um, what should I do? But I, I feel like that. So his advice was not to be liked or what? Uh, no, his advice was to, to be conscious of the precedence that your decision set and the, the signals that you set and the, and the times that you say yes when you really should be saying no, like the ramifications that they're mm -hmm. that it's going to have later. Um, but for me, it's a, that is a constant battle between wanting to make people happy in the moment. You know, they have they have a request, they want to mm -hmm. motor, they want to manage the team, they want to do this project, or um, balancing that against what I feel like are the best interests. What about you, Ari? I run the company together with Alan, and he's my husband, and I wouldn't do it with anyone else. This is such a crazy roller coaster, right? And it's a long-term roller coaster, so you better be with somebody that you really like, right. uh, On that ride, do you worry about not liking him. No, after so many years, I know for sure that he's the best bet uh, comparing to anyone else out there. And I love, I love working with him and uh, doing things with him. We share three kids, which is much more challenging that, uh, than, than running the company together. So that's, first of all, having somebody that you really trust and like and you know his skills and he knows yours and uh, you complement each other, that's wonderful for us. Um, also, in terms of the company, it, it was never about me or him or us. It's, it's about the people. And we wanted to create a company that would make us, first of all, very happy to come in the morning and work with these people. So each one of us make sure that we interview every single person in the company till today. Um, um, How many people is that? We have over 500 people in the company. And um, we want to make sure that we bring not just the best professionals at what they do, but also people that are wonderful to work with, good-hearted, no egos, innovative, um, team players, it's just so important to us and we have the right culture in a company. We have a flat organization, so we barely have, you know, we don't have middle management at all, we barely have managers. Um, so it's important to choose the right people to be with you in that journey. And so we, when you have great people in the company and your day-to-day -day roller coaster looks like fun, you're going to do it with people that you like and trust. And when you have a lot of support from the community when you're in that ride, I think it makes it um, much more fun. Look, it's crazy. Nobody will say it's not. I don't know about you guys, but this is a crazy ride. If somebody would have told me five, six years ago that this is what's going to happen, I would just not believe it. See, that I will agree to be in that crazy roller coaster. But um, 
it's fun. I love what I do. I love the impact on the industry. I love that professionals are telling us that this has completely changed our business and their life. This is what it's all about. So, so. let's talk, I'm not trying to focus on the downside, but what is, how do you look at the culture of Silicon Valley right now? You all have companies that are, have crazy valuations. I mean, I'm not saying, uh, look, investors can spend whatever they want, but they're huge valuations. Mm -hmm. It creates a sort of bubble around you, having met, having known and met all the founders of pretty much every internet company since the very beginning, it changes them. Very few do not change. Um, I think, you know, when you get licked up and down all day by people, it changes your personality. Um, so what what is that like? Your valuation is what? 2.8 billion. 20 billion. No, no, 2.8. 2.8 billion. Okay. Give well, that's next week. Okay. Um, yours is supposedly five, correct? Uh, we raised money in, uh, I guess, December at 3.5 billion. Okay. Well, I've heard five recently, suddenly. Okay. Um, yours? We never commented about our valuation. You know why? Because it's not really important. I guess yes, it's high. But, yes, it is, it's high, but it's not it's, really, because you have to ask yourself, Kara, why? Right. Yes, they are a great company out there, and I can say their valuation is not high enough. Why? Because that one, they are disrupting enormous industries. Two, yes, they have yes. substantial business behind them. And yes, there are others that, you know, their valuation is not right. So we have to ask I'm, why. I'm talking only in terms of what is it like in that moment when you have this and for the record it's like but I know but 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 it doesn't really matter I, and if it doesn't matter to you you know then you don't let so it you don't you feel know, pressure no. when, when they're that not at all and it's also that. important to have the right investors with you right. so you won't feel the pressure from the investors they're actually our greatest supporters and they know that it's going to be an, an amazing ride and we need to do it the right way the house way so if you choose the right investors you do things at the right time you know that you're doing it for the right reasons you know that you have substantial business. You know that you are leading a huge transformation of a, an enormous industry. It's over one trillion dollars uh, just between US and Europe without the rest of the world, the home remodeling design furnishing industries. So this is an enormous opportunity. Yes, there is a reason for that. And if you know that, you put all that aside and you focus your day-to-day -day life. How do you create the best user experience? How do you create the best product? The rest doesn't matter. So does it matter? To, does it, what impact does it have, Stuart, on that? Because people, you came out of nowhere. Really. I mean, you didn't. You've been, you did, you did uh, Flickr, which you sold for a small, relatively small amount of money to, con comparatively yeah. to Yahoo. Back when 25 million bucks was 25 a was a big deal. I covered that, actually. I remember covering that. It was a big deal. What, do, what, is the, what does it feel like in that, in that environment when people, you know, VCs are chasing you around, like, you know, um, well, there's how it, how it is for me, and then there's also the, um, I'll back up. I'm, I'm 42, so I was born in stagflation, and um, my father was a real estate developer and went Boston to 82 when interest rates went to 18%, and I graduated from high school in 1991, so into a recession, and worked through the dot-com crash and lost a lot of money in 2008. So like this is, uh, the reality of the cycle is very apparent to me. Um, and we have engineers like this, um, uh, this woman who I think is maybe 26 or 27, she joined us from Twitter, who started her career post-2008, so I've just never been through that alone. This is just the way it is. Like, your salary goes up 20% every year, um, and everyone, like, the expectation is that most people should make a couple hundred thousand dollars or a couple million dollars off their stock options. Um, and I, there's two things I worry about. One is um, the impact that has on motivation, so not in her case. I mean, she's great and she she likes to code and she's happy doing what she's doing, but it is, it's strange to not have that other side of the reality, you know, being part of your experience. The bigger problem for us is avoiding the feeling like, okay, now we've done it, you know, because this has already been, you know, we're going to return however many hundred X to our early investors and everyone's going to make a lot of money in, even in the worst case. So avoiding the feeling like, you know, we should stop or slow down or not feel the same kind of urgency that we felt. Do you felt. feel pressure, though, to change what you're doing? I mean, so, like, in the simplest terms, like, you guys are a nicer version of chat. You guys take 3% of what my, other people's money that they send to each other, and, and you guys are, like, a, a service for people who are rich and own homes, right? So, like, are you, does, does the fact that you're valued at billions of dollars mean that you want business number two, or like you're looking elsewhere, or uh, you need something else? I think valuations are generally uh, uh, sort of 
the, the external world sort of really over indexes on them because it's kind of the only metric you have, right? In that sort of we can celebrate our user figures or our transaction volume figures or the sort of metrics around particular product launches or things like that, right? Obviously, the rest of the world uh, doesn't, doesn't get to do that, right? Sort of the, the only rough proxy for, for sort of score that they have are these, these valuation figures and sort of, you know, as has been sort of increasingly discussed over the last year or two, you know, these numbers, it, it's, it's dangerous to read too much into them for, for kind of all sorts of reasons, right? But so I think because of that, you know, these, these valuation checkpoints uh, sort of become public events, but actually are sort of much smaller internally because the things that sort of led, you know, le led to them happening, um, people have sort of known about those and adjusted to them over the course of months, and then sort of, okay, if you decide that sort of raising additional capital is sort of what makes most sense for the company, that's sort of a pretty narrow tactical decision. I mean, it, it doesn't really change the nature of the company itself. And so basically, uh, I think the outside world thinks they're a huge deal, whereas internally, generally, much less so. I think the real danger in them is that you need to be very careful that sort of the people who are joining after these checkpoints are kind of doing it for the right reasons and aren't coming right. in with unrealistic expectations around sort of, you know, uh, these companies have already... It goes up and to the right all the time. Exactly. Um, or that they're sort of joining this kind of inexorable like, you know, train journey to success or something like that. Right. That's, I think, the, the, the I think big... it, not pretending that they don't matter is also... I mean, I remember being at a party with Mark Zuckerberg when they had that $15 billion valuation at one point. Um, and, and he was yelling at me saying it didn't matter. He was essentially, it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter, this is no big deal. And this absolutely stunning woman came up to him. This was after it was reported. And it was like, hi, Mark, how are you doing? Call me. Here's my number and stuff like that. And he goes, it really doesn't matter. I go, I'm sure it was your personality that she was, <laughs> you know what I mean? I was like, are you, yes, it does. I, I know this was just a day thing, but it, it creates a froth around you and an attention kind of thing that you then success begets success in many ways, sometimes. And then it can also be a lodestone around your neck at the, at the same time. Yeah, I think if you, if you don't live up to the expectations, definitely a lodestone, but there's, there's definite advantages to it, right? So, uh, I mean, it depends on your industry, maybe less so for Facebook, <laughs> but we have big corporate customers, you know, like Fortune 50 customers, and for them it makes a difference that we're well capitalized enough to survive for the long term. Yeah, that's that right. true for you as well. I mean, it matters less on the consumer side. Yeah. I, I was going to say exactly that. I, I think for... Um, uh, for consumer companies, the dynamics are sort of a, a little bit more subtle because this sort of increasing uh, uh, pressure to go and figure out an amazing revenue model once you sort of finally start to do that, to live up to this uh, kind of valuation. Right. Rate. Whereas for enterprise companies, it's generally based on the sort of business that exists today. And so for... You're just trying to make that bigger. Yeah, exactly. And so, like, there's a model you can build. You can uh, you can sort of project the figures. You can understand sort of the acquisition funnel, all of these things, right? And, and you can sort of see what that's going to get to. But in some ways, it's just like inherently less speculative. It's based off a business that exists and sort of is is working in the day. And so, I mean, in, in Stripe's case, obviously, like, we're not sort of uh, uh, when we have conversations with investors, we're not talking about sort of some crazy thing we're going to do in the future or some new division we're going to start or whatever. It's like here's what we're doing today, and just kind of here's that that is on a trajectory to become. Is it different for you, Adi? No, I think that this is exactly the case. Investors are looking at us, and, and, and I'll add on that, and I'll say they are looking for the leaders. If, if there are companies out there that are really changing an industry, transforming it completely, the way things are being done, and it's an in, a very big industry, and if you already figure out the business model, it's, it's much better because then you have the user attraction, but you also have a substantial business. They say, okay, we want to be part of it because we see the opportunity. As I said, over a trillion dollars opportunity, that's big. Um, House is doing it, House is leading it, so why not to, to invest in it now and be part of that, right? Again, we are not raising just for the sake of raising. So, um, but I'm looking at the responsible investors that we have on board, and I wouldn't say that this is just gambling or betting. I think that they are great companies, not just have out there, um, that have substantial businesses, and the expectation is to continue disrupting and leading and doing what they are doing today. So, last question, then we'll get to the audience. What what is the thing that you, advice that you would give to a startup person? And what's the mistake that you made that you would fix? So what is the thing you'd like to fix right now and change about each of you? And then we'll get to questions from the audience. Uh, pass. No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. I mean, I, I, like, there's a lot of individual mistakes I made that I think are probably particular to the, to the context. Um, On the one hand, it's a giant litany of mistakes. On the other hand, I think that um, the, the 
advice that I haven't actually taken, but I feel like I would give to other people is um, find a way to delegate as much as you can in the beginning. And I'm not a good, a strong delegator. I mean, I, I guess maybe there's some like specific responsibilities I don't delegate, but there are whole areas that I don't even think about anymore, so I have already done that. Um, I have never had an EA and I'm about to get one in two weeks, and my, I feel like 70% of my mental capacity is taken up with just trying to remember the stuff I'm supposed to do, so that would be a good one. Um, the, and this is not something that a lot of people have control over, but I think choosing your investors wisely makes a, a huge amount of difference, because this, this is a slight tangent from your question. But okay. um, on, on the valuation, I think one thing to, to recognize is the higher valuations make a difference to the psychology on the investor side, um, because a lot of our investors, as individuals who have been, you know, have had long careers and successful funds, have lots of money already. So, like the carry, like the bit that they're going to make on the fund that invested in, in Slack, that's going to, you know, like the extra twenty million bucks or something like that that they make is not really going to make a difference to their life. What does make a difference is if we fail, they look like a chump, and if we succeed, they look like a genius. And who doesn't want to look like a genius versus a chump? And so we have all these smart, powerful, connected people who are on the boards of other companies and you know, have all these. Um, resources and political capital that they can spend on our behalf, and they're very motivated to do it. Again, not because of the incremental extra money that they'll make, but because you know their kids are going to read about them in Wikipedia ten years. Right. So don't make your investors look like a chump. Yeah. Okay. Um, I think that uh, all startup uh, uh, advice, sort of like everything, is kind of tertiary except the core one of just get the product right. Uh, in that, it, it's sort of really tempting to sort of focus on you know. Uh, on other facets and to kind of uh, make it seem more complicated uh, than it is. I think that it's pretty rare that a company or, or a set of individuals build something like really great and sort of screw something else up so badly that it actually sort of uh, uh, drags down the entire company. Screw screwing other things might make it harder, might make it take longer, whatever, but uh, uh, you know, just th that is a central thing. But given that that's, I guess, maybe received wisdom, that this sort of slight additional thing that I might add to it is once you're confident that you sort of have the product right, and not to be shy about sort of uh, expanding its scope. And it's kind of, I think, delicate to kind of balance that with uh, sort of becoming unfocused. Um, but for us, we sort of, in the beginning, uh, as I was describing, we sort of thought about it as, well, there should be kind of this uh, software platform for payments. And we kind of thought about it very much in sort of a payments lens. Um, and now we've kind of come to realize that actually sort of the scope of opportunity is, is way broader. And we started to sort of build these additional services uh, around, say, fraud protection or building services that help mobile marketplaces scale or crowdfunding platforms or whatever the case might be, right? And coming back to kind of the mistake question, I think we could actually probably have started doing that a little bit earlier, kind of once we once we realized, hey, this, the kind of core thesis behind the product um, yeah, is, really is, is, is correct. Um, and so, uh, yeah, like number one, get the product right, and two, don't be shy about then kind of uh, uh, pu pushing the walls of sort of the, the light cone of scope around Sometimes you. Sometimes people do think small. You know, I mean, I, I, when I was at newspapers, I used to say, think small and then think smaller. That's your attitude, that's your motto. Yeah, well, I, I think certainly, like, until you're at that point where you know that the core thesis is right, I think people kind of waste way too much time on sort of trying to model out what this looks like in year seven, whereas you just want to optimize for sort of forward momentum for the first year. Great. Adi, finish up. Yeah, I agree with both of you, and I'll kind of divide it to the life cycle, through the life cycle of the company. Um, I mentioned before, bootstrapping may be a good idea at the beginning of the way, when you're ready for investors, choose the best ones out there, and if you're at the right moment with the right product, the best ones will come to you. So that's super important, and it's even more important when you're growing and you have the right people on board. Then um, go and hire the best people out there. Don't compromise. One amazing engineer worth 10 mediocre people So in the company. And so that's super, super important. This is why both Alon and I are so involved in the hiring process. We invest more than 50% of our time in hiring, uh, but it's uh, really worth it. And we're very proud that um, a majority of our engineering team are people that started um, more than four years ago together with us, and they are still part of the family. The culture is super important. So invest in the culture, diversity is important. Just create an environment that people will be very, very proud of and also empowered to innovate. So we didn't ask about diversity. Yeah, but I think like maybe an, a way to ask about it is you guys all seem to me like serious and responsible leaders who are observant of what's going on around them. So how are you building your companies, this next generation of companies differently? Are you adding 
Um, are you doing better HR practices? Are you figuring out privacy better earlier? Are you actually doing customer service for real? Or you know, what are, what are you doing to build a serious organization and one that um, hopefully is uh, representative of the people who use it and not the small sliver of bros in Silicon Valley? Um, I can talk about us. I'll say from day one, our focus was one thing. How do we remove the, bar the barrier between homeowners like us and great professionals from the home improvement and design industry and great design and, and make this process fun and productive and not a nightmare like it was for many, many people. And the focus didn't change all these years. So focus is very important. And then the way you do it, you just try to put the product and user experience always at the is your top priority and you always listen to the community and you always stay on top of you know what's next what's the next innovation how do we solve the problem um, that's what I call responsible because you wanna you want to bring this industry not just in the US now all over the world to the 21st century and you want to make sure that you're doing it right with the right people with you and for the people in the community we have over 30 million people in the community that are giving us feedback on a, on a daily basis and this is important to listen and to them. Versus house? Houses, I'm very proud of that. We have uh, way over 50% uh, of the company is female, and they are contributing across the board, engineering, design, marketing, you name it. So very proud. It also creates a great environment. We can contribute a lot to uh, the high-tech uh, high scene as well as to the economy. So I think um, we should see more of, of, of this type of diversity. In your company's diversity, and then we'll get to questions. Sorry. How do you look at the diversity issue? Um, Two things. The first is uh, we thought about what we could do, and one of those things is contribute to programs that will make a difference 10 years from now and change the pipeline and stuff like that. Um, and sorry, I said that in a dismissive tone of voice. I don't mean to dismiss that at all because it is something that we also do. Um, but I think the thing that was more important for us and the more immediate impact was to um, try to do what we can to not be slack a place where women's or underrepresented people's career ends. Because that's the attrition is like I think a, a second uh, second problem um, and and maybe um, one that if fixed has a, has its own impact on the pipeline. So I mean, if you want the numbers, I asked earlier this morning because I knew I was going to get asked. And I didn't get them all. I know uh, on engineering, twenty percent women, whole company a third, management is a third. So it's you know, I think the rote answer is. Uh, we're, we've made some efforts, and we haven't gone far enough, and we'll continue. Um, but the one thing I think we've been doing that uh, I would recommend for other people is to really try to make it a conscious decision. Every time we're hiring um, and we have an all-male set of candidates for the role, we ask why. So was there something in the job description? Is there something like how did we distribute the job description? Um, every interview panel has at least one woman, and ideally the, the, the interview panel is more than reflective of our internal diversity. Um, anytime there's a hiring or promotion decision, um, there's a, like a step back and analyze that after. And I, the team is super, super committed to that. And I think that that's, um, that that's made it already. I mean, just the consciousness of it and trying to, trying to check yourself as you go has um, made a big difference to us and I think a big difference to employees. Hey, Patrick, real briefly. Doing it. Honestly, the whole issue, uh, like, and, and the state of diversity in in Silicon Valley, like, it 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 really pisses me off. Um, in the sense that, like, that the figures in the industry generally are so poor, like, that's just really bad. Um, uh, it kind of, uh, I'm really sort of disappointed that we haven't been able to do more ourselves, and that our numbers are essentially the same, about a third of the company is women, um, uh, about a third of our management, again, uh, is female, um, which, you know, I really wish it was higher, and, and obviously not just at, sort of in terms of, you know, female representation, but sort of you know, broader diversity, right? Um, so you're pissed uh, off, and you really wish it was different. You're the, actually the CEO, so. Well, well I was going to say, and the, and the third way in which uh, sort of it pisses me off is I'm not it's sort of a frustration that we haven't figured out better ways to make a difference here, right? And that we've done some of the same things. We sort of place an emphasis on, on trying to hire candidates from diverse backgrounds. Uh, over the last year, half of the managers or leaders we've hired uh, are women, and so it's sort of slightly above kind of the, the, uh, the average before that. 
uh, and, and through kind of active effort, um, we've sort of sponsored some programs, we've you know, tried to, we've engaged with consultants, like we've sort of tried to figure out ways in, in which we can sort of make a real difference here. But no, I mean, they're, they're obviously empirically in the data, sort of highly incomplete mm -hmm. answers. Do you and think so, it's important? You don't have to think it's important. Ben Horowitz gave me an answer. He didn't think it, he, he was No, I, th I think it's completely wrong. I think, I mean, I, I think it's important for several reasons, each of which is sort of individually sufficient, right? I think, it, like, the moral issue, uh, just kind of the, the, the idea that it's just inherently a wrong in the world to sort of have a, 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 such an important industry, hire only sort of particular sets of people, I think we should, uh, we should work to fix the issue just because of that, right? Secondly, I think, and, and various studies have shown, uh, more diverse teams are actually more effective, right? And so even if for some reason you didn't care about the, the moral issue, I think that the second one where, again, diverse teams are, are, are just more effective is, is itself sufficient. Um, and, then, uh, and then thirdly, I think there, there is kind of, uh, like, there are so many sort of extremely talented people who, for whatever reason, have been sort of repeatedly passed over. They, they don't live in the right place, they don't come from the right background, they didn't go to the right school, they aren't of the right gender, sort of whatever the case might be. And so I think that sort of companies can have uh, sort of, there's huge untapped sources of, 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 of talent there, right? And the Nobel Prize was won in, I remember sort of uh, exactly what the year was, was in the 60s or thereabouts, sort of showing how uh, like discrimination is, is just economically bad, and uh, sort of because you're you're kind of incorrectly passing over all, all of this talent. And I think that that's very much true for Silicon Valley, where there are all these people who just we, we should be hiring, and for bad reasons are not. And so I think any one of those three is sufficient. Uh, uh, and and you know, in combination, it means it, it genuinely is a, a hugely important issue. Bringing back to sort of being pissed off about it, where it is important. Uh, uh, we're not doing. You know, significantly better than other companies, and we haven't figured out a, a great way to make a difference. Instead of, I mean, you, you've now asked this this question of sort of most speakers here, and uh, you know, I, I haven't heard all of them, but generally, I feel like the answers are, are kind of always the same. And that, you know, for such an important issue, the fact that we sort of haven't figured out better answers, I mean, that's just extremely, uh, extremely frustrating. Well, that on that note, uh, any questions from the audience? Go ahead. Okay. Thanks, Kara. So this is for Stuart primarily. It's Awesome Comic Shack News. Um, you know, it seems like your company is an acquisition target for a number of very large companies. So my question to you is, how are you fighting that off? Because you want to keep your investors happy, right? And with valuations this high, it seems like, you know, you might want to strike while the iron's hot, but at the same time, do right by your product. So I was wondering how you balance those two things. Yeah, how did you balance those two things? Um, to me, it's not, I mean, so I've already been through an acquisition, and that... Uh, that was great. Yeah, that was fucking <laughs> very fulfilling. Um, not so good. Yeah, no, I mean, there was, I learned a lot, and I can't say that I regret it. Um, it's like saying, you know, you burnt your hand, I learned a lot about not touching stoves, but okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, we have hundreds of millions of dollars in the bank. The business has been growing for 5% a week for 70 straight weeks. Um, our 98.5% of people who have ever paid for Slack are still paying for it, so you don't really have any churn. Like in every respect, the business, there's a huge margin of error, and there's plenty of other things we can screw up. Um, and I'm sure that for myself and probably for most people on the team, we'll never have an opportunity this big again. So if we ever wanted to see how far we could take it, this would be the time. Um, and it's pretty easy. I mean, how do you shut it down? No one ever calls you up and says, we would like to acquire you, period. It's like, hey, we should catch up or, you know. Yeah. But when someone from Corp says, hey, you know, if you have some time, it would be great if I could stop by and kind of make a connection or something like that. Yeah. It's pretty obvious what's going on. And you can just say no. So should someone just call you up and say, I'd like to give you... $50 billion. $50 billion? I don't know. Just pick a number. $50 million. Billion. Okay, $50 billion. $50 billion I would have to think about and probably take that You would back have to, to think about? Are you an idiot? Like, you would have to take Well, what about, I'm going to, I'm going to, it's... I love your pride, but seriously, if you get a $50 billion offer, you need to take it, okay? Well, no, I, I'm going to make more money than I need in any outcome at this point, right? So... Um, if it was just optimizing for, like, yes. I guess it would, would make a difference to um, to people who joined the company a couple of days ago and right. had very much smaller equity stakes, and for that reason, they have to consider it. Um, but I think there's a there's an opportunity here that's very big, and I'm not just saying that. How many uh, offers I, I don't, have you gotten? How many offers have you gotten? Um, I think if we but for lunch, if we let people go all the way to making an offer, maybe eight or ten, something like that. 
Okay. I don't think he should just take a $50 billion offer. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, I mean, uh, it has been reported that Salesforce just turned down uh, an offer of sort of uh, uh, roughly that magnitude. And a priori, it doesn't seem at all clear to me that sort of the Slack opportunity isn't as large or larger than the Salesforce one. That's a fair point. That's, that's the Mark Zuckerberg argument. And he was right. That's correct. He was right. Yeah. And also the two... Um, the two founders of Google were offered a million dollars each from Ted Leonsis at AOL because there was two of them. <laughs> so it was two million dollars. I think they made the right choice in that case. Um, Hi, Kalpesh Kapari. I'm a startup CEO. Stuart, you touched upon an important issue about compensation and talent. Um, are there any creative ways to attract uh, talent given the war that is in Silicon Valley of you know offering perks and salaries and equity that is unheard of in other other parts of the world? Yeah, so there's actually I can tie a whole bunch of points together here. So one is um, we're in the very fortunate position. I think part of this has to, is driven by valuations as well and the, the kind of positive feedback loop and the winner-take-all, not in the, the market dynamic, but winner-take-all in the perception dynamic, that it's not hard for us to recruit right now. So we're in the extremely fortunate and almost certainly time-limited scenario where we get three or 400 incoming resumes a week. We don't do any upbound recruiting and we are hiring great candidates. Um, I would prefer that for most people coming to work with us, like the, the people that they get to work with and the scale of the opportunity and all those things. Like if someone's evaluating an offer from us and, and this one they figure from, from Stripe instead, because we compete sometimes on offers, is gonna net them $5,000 a year more over the course of four years than go, go work for Stripe. Um, because first of all, the, there's a lot of variability, um, but second of all, um, that kind of mercenary attitude, and you know, it's easy for me to say as a CEO um, and a large equity holder that that's a mercenary attitude, but um, uh, uh, for the benefit of the people who already work here and the benefit of like the whole team and the people who work there in the future, we want to try to attract people who are um, excited by the idea of being able to do the best work of their lives. And also, there's a, there's a second order opportunity, and this is, comes back to diversity a little bit, and I'll say that I, I have the opposite opinion to Ben. I really like Ben a lot, and he's a friend, but I don't really care if it's economically in our self-interest because right. that, maybe it won't be later because we used to think that there was light was propagated by ether and right. the Newtonian mechanics were right. Um, and there could very well be a study, and it's a hard thing to study, and there's a lot of controls that says, oh, diverse teams are actually perform worse. So, and, and at that point, we wouldn't say, all right, done. Um, the, <coughs> this is maybe a slightly longer answer than you would hope for. but. Um, we get resumes, and sometimes you see this resume and say, oh, she worked at Apple for three years. And so uh, you don't want that to be the sole determinant of your decision, but it definitely makes a difference. When I think about the power, like I, I spent half my time in Vancouver, and, and people outside of Silicon Valley always like, have some scheme to become like Silicon Valley. And the thing that's impossible is the network. Like, it doesn't matter where you worked five years ago or 10 years ago, um, you met all these people that are incredibly, like, you know, the, being in Yahoo 2005 and 2008, the, the, just the people on the same floor as me in that one building um, are very powerful connections. And we want to give people an opportunity to be part of that, um, to have that cool company on their resume, because I think we will be someone that five years from now that people say, oh, they worked at Slack. Um, and, and also to make those connections and to be able to participate in the equity. So the, sorry, very long answer. That's okay. What did you do early days, before you were a cool company, valued a lot of money that everybody wanted to join? That's a different story, I think. Uh, than for what most of the early stage entrepreneurs are facing. They can sell that um, growth or dream or name. Um, well, I mean, you've you got to be good at peddling the dream to a certain extent. Yeah. Um, but also, I yeah. have the benefit of their four co-founders, um, one of whom I've now worked with for 17 years, um, and all the rest of us, we've worked together for more yeah. than a decade. We also had the, the failed company before, so we, we kept eight people, and so we've right. already worked together for many years. So the core team yeah. had many years together and was, and was very strong, and also good reputations. And so. Right. Okay, let's get to the last two. So, Here. Uh, I guess this is the love child of the last two questions. If you want to go the distance and remain independent, but also uh, honor the talent that you have on the team, how do you think about giving people access to liquidity before uh, you know, a transaction at the company level occurs. Um, how do you want you I think that if you have the opportunity to do that, you should do that. Um, 
again, it needs to be the right thing at the right time, at the right level uh, for the company and for the people. But I think that you should always remember that these people are exactly like you. They have dreams and they have life and you want them to stay with you for the long term and you want to make their life a little bit easier. And if you can, you should do it. Anywhere? Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm very much in favor of it, especially in this kind of environment where there's a lot more money, like there's more demand for Slack shares than there's a lot the of supply capital. of them. And so uh, I think it's great. There's, there's, you know, there's being super rich, and then there's many stages before that. And one of the stages before that is I don't have to worry about my student loans anymore, or I have a little bit more for a down payment on a house, or I can take care of my parents or something like that. So if we can put people in a place where they have one fewer worry in their life, one fewer concern, then I think that's great for them and it's great for the company. Okay. Eric, last question. Hi, a uh, question for Stuart about uh, product, product question about Slack. Uh, currently, you have a lot of, uh, it's possible to integrate a lot of third-party services, if I'm remembering correctly, including Stripe into Slack. Mm -hmm. But I'm wondering, I mean, do you see a future, do you want to see a future where Slack has more of that sort of built-in natively, I mean, you know, disruption panel where you're disrupting those other companies? I mean, you can throw your weight around now with uh, the size that you've gotten. I think it's actually the opposite. So um, there's an internal joke that, uh, one day I will be exactly like Balmer with the sweaty pants prancing across the stage saying developers, 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 developers. Because yeah. we can only <laughs> do so do much. There's a lot of different products that people could build. And our philosophy so far has been whatever tools you already use, we would like to make those better. So if you happen to use Dropbox, we would like to make Dropbox better for you. If you happen to use Box instead, then we would like to make Box better for you or OneDrive or whatever. Um, and we're neutral with respect to those. The, the great thing about Slack, from my perspective as a platform, is we get paid because people are using Slack. So it doesn't matter to us. Um, you know, we don't have to take away someone's business on the calendaring or task management or customer relationship management or marketing analytics or BI or whatever. Um, we can coexist with them in a mutually supportive way because I think it's helpful, and I, I genuinely believe it is helpful for a lot of Stripe customers to have their information pumped into Slack. Like it actually makes Stripe a better product for them, and so we can cooperate. And that's, that's true with almost every other company in the technology space, and I think that'll be better for us in the long run than, than like incremental revenue gain from adding an additional adjacent product category. So you're saying you're not going to make your own GIF creator? No. Yeah, we'll, we'll let pe other people can handle all of the emoji and animated gifts. Great. Well, thank you three so much. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye.